0: On February 22nd, two longtime foes in South Sudan signed a power-sharing agreement to formally end the country's brutal six-year civil war. The accord was signed between President Salva Kiir and his main rival, Riek Machar, and it made Machar and other opposition leaders vice presidents in a new government of national unity. There is a lot riding on this peace agreement. Over the course of the civil war, some 400,000 people were killed and millions displaced from their homes. South Sudan was already one of the poorest countries on the planet, and this civil war made life that much worse for its beleaguered population. The civil war broke out in December 2013, when President Salva Kiir accused his then-Vice President Riek Machar of fomenting a coup. The fighting escalated very quickly and took on ethnic dimensions as well. Kyr and Machar are from different ethnic groups. Over the years, there have been different attempts at peace, principally encouraged by leaders of neighboring countries and by Western powers like the United States and Norway. But each of those prior attempts at peace have failed, which is why there is just so much riding on this February 22nd agreement. On the line with me to discuss this peace agreement is Yok Medut Yok. He is a professor at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University and a senior analyst with the Sud Institute, which is a public policy center based in Juba, South Sudan. We kick off with an extended conversation about the causes and consequences of South Sudan's civil war and then get into some analysis about whether or not this agreement can hold. This conversation is obviously very timely if you're listening to this contemporaneously. And also, more broadly, the trajectory of South Sudan has just profound implications for international peace and security. I think you'll enjoy this episode. And this episode is supported in part by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to feature African perspectives on peace and security issues in Africa, and to view other episodes that are part of this series, please visit com or just download or subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to it. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. All right, now here is my conversation with Yoke Medut Yoke of Syracuse University and the Sud Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Generally, the conflict that uh, started past 10 p.m. on the 15th of December 2013 has been attributed to a variety of root causes. And I imagine not a whole lot of South Sudanese really agree on one particular factor that is more important than all the others. Um, one of these factors has been the idea that there was a coup by a number of former government officials, uh, senior officials, including the former vice president, Dr. Yagma Charten, and ministers who were in the government uh, who were fired uh, in July of 2013 and became very angry at uh, at that political development, and so they had been plotting to change uh, the regime because of this. This has been uh, particularly advanced as a factor by the government supporters and the and the government itself, including. Spokespersons, the people in the Ministry of Information, they were the ones explaining this, uh, and, and the President himself, Salva Mayadit. Um, um, so the coup idea was initially very uh, prominent as a cause of the of that conflict, of that outbreak of violence on that night. Uh, many people have uh, uh, negated this and and have. Gone out of their way to explain how a coup would not have been even possible, uh, let alone even suggested, uh, and instead uh, point to other possible uh, reasons why there was violence on that day. And one of these other reasons is the way South Sudan had been managing its uh, security risks. Uh, since the end of the North-South War in 2005 had left a lot to be desired in terms of uh, bringing together variety of fighting forces uh, within South Sudan, some of which had fought many wars against one another, and now bringing them together with an eye to creating uh, one unified national army And that reunification and the military integration and the absorptions and of forces from the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, which had been fighting Khartoum, and all the other fighting forces that had fought against it, bringing them together uh, was haphazard. It was not genuine, and it was uh, self-serving to some of the commanders. The more forces you tried to enlist, the more power uh, you felt as a commander, whether you are in the government or you are in in one of these other uh, non-affiliated militia groups, when we get to
0: the part of the conversation when we're when we discuss the contours of this power sharing agreement, I feel that that aspect integrating disparate militias into a single national army might be one of the key factors going forward. Uh, but uh, you know, as you said, there are there were a, you know a variety of, of reasons. One could surmise that conflict broke out in December twenty thirteen, but the impact and the consequence and the trajectory of that conflict was. Undoubtedly just tragic in in, in any way you you sort of count it. Can you, I guess, just describe how did the fighting itself evolve? And it seemed also early on in the conflict that the fighting um, also took on some ugly ethnic components as well.
1: Yes. Once the fighting broke out, uh, whatever reason you take to be the main cause, uh, the fact is that once it started, um, it became it was it was not particularly surprising that it happened because everybody knew uh, that uh, the country was building towards a kind of explosion, given those military integrations that failed, given the DDR that didn't work, given the commercial
0: uh just, just interrupt. Trump DDR stands for a de- demobilization disarmament and reintegration it's and a inter- term of right. art used yes. to so describe they... how you uh you integrate combatants and disarm militias Man, just so it's people knew. know who 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 aren't who don't know the lingo that's right
1: so thank you so yes um so there were there were uh, all kinds of efforts by the UN by the Sudanese mil- South Sudanese military itself trying to figure out who should remain in the army and who should be given and facilitated to transition into civilian life, all of which did not work very well uh, because the army and being in in armed forces was still the only most assured uh, way of uh, having an income. So a lot of people might say, I want to enter the DDR, but they really didn't want to leave and so they got into DDR by remaining in the army, which is why the army was so big and which is really part of the, the reason for the conflict uh, in, 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 the, in the sense that the army became and remained the biggest institution and the most expensive in South Sudan, but also the, no, the most dysfunctional and, and, and a, a conduit for all types of corruption, which diverted money from all the uh, service and, 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 and um, a consolidation of peace in the lives of everyday people. Um, and all of those programs really fail. And so every South Sudanese did not have any uh, uh, idea how this country is going to serve them, how it is going to translate that peace into their lives on everyday basis. And so, the, so that, that, that mismanagement of security risk uh, emanating from a haphazard military structure became a major cause of the conflict. And so the, regardless of what you, you, you took as the primary factor in this conflict, the fact is that it was not surprising anymore because it was the, 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 the signs of it were written everywhere. That this is going to happen. What was what happened then was the the, the level of viciousness and the and and the violence that uh, followed that fateful evening is what shocked everyone, because it quickly turned into uh, first of all a split in the national army, the SPLA, and that split. Uh, very quickly took this ethnic overtone where uh, the SPLA members of the Dinka ethnic group uh, went after uh, people who were uh, ethnic Nuer because of this fear that the Nuer were going to support Machar, who is also a Nuer himself, and that if this was to happen, the best thing that the Dinka members of the SPLA should do is to preempt the Nuer, because otherwise, if the Nuer got the opportunity to gain an upper hand in this confrontation, they will come for every uh, every Dinka in the town. So there beginning there was a beginning uh, there was beginning to be a, a, that ethnic uh, tilt to the conflict, even though it erupted really over things that are. Uh, national issues things that are mundane to people's lives things to do with mismanagement of resources things to do with insecurity and justice and injustice that had been growing and and building up since 2005 so that that, that this 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 happened was not a surprise but it still it shocked everybody in terms of how quickly it morphed into a kind of ethnic war and how violent it was, and un- unmerciful uh, and vicious, uh, where uh, even colleagues, people who, were, who belonged to the same unit, uh, forgot those things in favor of looking at ethnic, at the ethnicity of the individuals, rather than whether they are actually uh, your colleagues in the same force. I've seen just, just to, to,
0: to that end, I've seen estimates that, you know, some 400,000 people died as a result of the war. Uh, Millions were, were displaced. And, you know, the war just kind of ground on for, for many years. However, there was this brief moment in 2016. Uh, in which there was an agreement um, that, you know, if I recall, the U.S. government was trying very hard to push for. Secretary Kerry uh, at the time was, was, you know, trying to make this one of his last big international peace efforts. And it did result in a brief power-sharing agreement between Machar and salva Kier. Though I, I'm trying to remember the circumstances, but I seem to recall that you know, forces loyal to Machar and loyal to salva Kiir just started having a battle in the middle of Juba after the agreement had already been, been reached.
1: Yeah, no, the agreement, uh, the thing is, uh, as soon as the conflict turned into a civil war, in essence, from January 2014 onward, uh there was a quick uh, scramble to try to contain it, uh, mainly by uh, something called IGAT, Intergovernmental Agency on Development, which is uh, a trade bloc uh, involving East and Horn of Africa countries. Um, but also from uh, something that increasingly became known as the Troika, involving the U.S., Britain, and Norway, all facilitated a conversation, a, a kind of a peace talk. Uh, to take place in Addis Ababa. And they went on uh, uh, with ceasefires and cessation of austerities being signed but uh, collapsed uh, shortly after. And it went on until August 2015 when uh, a, a peace deal was reached. Uh, but its implementation also became a problem because, you know, with regards to implementing peace agreements uh, if other agreements throughout Africa are any guide, you know that uh, the signature of a peace agreement is not the end of the conflict as uh, the implementation of it uh, continues to be a kind of negotiation and renegotiation as people vie for its implementation. So trying to implement the 2015 peace agreement took a whole year until April 2016 when finally... Um, Uh, Dr. Riyadh Machar returned to Juba to become the first vice president once again in in, in South Sudan. And uh, a government was formed, a government of national unity called Tigunu, Transitional Government of National Unity, with with Machar as vice president, with um, uh, one other vice president, and uh, the cabinet was formed, the parliament was... uh, 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 sort of reconstituted with opposition members being added, and the government was uh, was now going to focus on the transitional period until elections. But uh, in July, uh, there were serious disagreements between the president and the vice president, and a, and a and a fight broke out inside. Yeah, and like a fight broke
0: out because you know the vice president Machar, Machar brought his security forces inside the capital city, which was, you know, I guess, a part yeah. of the agreement, right? Yeah. And the, agreement the, the, those power. forces, like a 1,000 of his troops and a 1,000 of the government troops started you know, shooting it out over some random disagreement.
1: That's right. No, the part of the agreement was to bring, for Machar to bring his own uh, uh, protection force, which at that time constituted with about 1,300 um, well-trained um, soldiers. Um, and. On that day, um, in July, um, Machar came to his workplace, as he had done since April, and uh, uh, the the fight broke out over uh, numerous uh, issues of disagreement, including the idea that having two armies in one country, in one city, armies that had spent Good two years fighting vicious conflict, and, and they were brought together to live in the, side by side in the same uh, presidential uh, quarters uh, was simply uh, untenable, and, and the result was that uh, a, a vicious dog fight uh, broke out um, in short-range shooting, and, and, and it went on for hours. Uh, at the end of which uh, Machar was uh, escorted back to his residence. And uh, the next day and the, the, and the following day, the fight continued uh, throughout Juba. Uh, very, very violent uh, and very um, um, vicious uh, fight uh, continued throughout the town, uh, causing uh, Machar to flee the town once again, just the way he had done Back in 2013, and uh, that uh, reignited the civil war, and the civil war continued then uh, for the next two years until September 2018, when another peace was signed. Let me ask, yeah, so
0: so what compelled that ceasefire in September 2018? Because, you know, that ceasefire has more or less held uh, since then, over the last, uh, you know, year and a half, almost, you know, two, two years.
1: Well, I think it was uh, several reasons. Uh, one is that um, I think there may have been uh, a latter-day realization that uh, this war is unwinnable uh, militarily uh, on both sides, uh, but, uh, but also that it had caused so much suffering and so much death. Uh, close to half a million people had died by that time, as you mentioned earlier. Um, the there was a lot of pressure from outside. The United States government uh, started to work together with the United Nations Security Council to impose economic sanctions on some individuals. Uh, there were pressure from within the region. The IGAT countries and the East Africa community were all affected by this conflict and wanted this to end. So the pressure from all these quarters and from within the country itself, uh, must have uh, militated uh, for these uh, two principal uh, opponents, President Kir and Vice President Machar, uh, to sit down in 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 Antebi, Uganda, and then to Khartoum, Sudan, and finally to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and the peace agreement was signed in August 2018, in September 2018 and uh and and but again like like the peace agreement in 2015 it also took a long time to uh to implement it because the peace agreement is uh, several chapters and and before uh, you get to the point where you form a government or a coalition government you there are things that are called pre-interim issues that need to be worked out. One of them is this idea that soldiers, the fighting forces, have to be cantoned. And that from this cantonment camps, uh, maybe there can be a process by which uh, a, a unified force that would become the National Army of South Sudan can be formed from these camps. Uh, that And was, we should
0: say, like, cantonment is another sort of term of art in peace agreements that's, right. that in which, um, you know, militias or armies are sort of basically kept in a spot or at a base uh, before they can begin that DDR, that process of reintegrating into society and demobilizing.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the idea of uh, cantonment camps was to bring all the militia forces and put them in camps and all the government forces put in camps. Uh, away from civilian areas. The idea was to sort of uh, demilitarize the ordinary society uh, and move guns away from everyday interactions uh, and silence the guns in a way with an eye to eventually uh, forming a national army out of this. Uh, Before you get to the formation of the national army, the, the idea is that there should be some training and, uh, and some sifting through the forces to see who is going to advance to become uh, a member of the uniform, uniform forces of the national army uh, of the country, uh, who is going to be uh, transitioned into a civilian life, who is going to be uh, uh, put on a, a payroll as a wounded soldier, uh, who is going to be? Uh, who has a profession who can who can go into it and and dividing that army into uh, the national army, the police force, the uh, prison guards, the game wardens, uh, fire brigades, all the what South Sudanese refer to as uh, formal forces or formal arm or for, mm-hmm.
0: uh, uh, like into basically like integrating them into some formal structures. Right. So on February twenty second, Machar and Kier, you know, formally entered into a power sharing agreement. What was interesting to me is to see the degree of optimism around this agreement um, from, you know, experts and, and and others. There seems to be like a, a real degree of of momentum and optimism that this time the peace agreement will will stick. I mean, do you share that kind of 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 cautious optimism that I seem to be seeing from the expert community?
1: Well, before I come to to how I feel about this agreement, let me just uh, give you a background to it, which is that. Um, the the formation of the uh, so-called revitalized transitional government of national unity was supposed to take place uh, in uh, April of 2019. When that time came, the parties had not agreed that Some of these pre interim period issues, like security arrangements, like the issue of uh, borders that of the states that President Keir had created, had divided a country into uh, 32 states, the issue to do with their boundaries, uh, the issues to do with the repatriation of uh, more than 1 million. IDPs uh, throughout the country, internally displaced persons, and another million in refugee camps. Many of these things were supposed to have been done prior to the formation of the, of the revitalized transitional government of national unity. When that moment came, these things were not done. So uh, the opposition called for an extension. And the extension was uh, now made and that the government would be formed in November of 2019. And when November came, uh, these things were not done still. Uh, the government kept saying that uh, it could not do the cantonment, it could not do the training because it, it, it takes money to do this and the government says it does not have the resources. Uh, so they met in Entebbe uh, uh, under the auspices of the Ugandan president, uh, Ueri Kaguta Museveni, and the decision was made that it, there should be a second postponement, and that postponement was what resulted in the idea that the government would be formed in February, uh, 100 days from that time, uh, and that that that, that f- fell at uh, February 22nd, uh, 2020. So when that moment came, uh, there was still some skepticism that there might still be yet uh, uh, another extension because all those things that caused the extension were not met. The cantonment was very slow. Uh, There was no agreement on the borders and the number of uh, states. There was no agreement on uh, what the government was going to do to try to repatriate IDPs and refugees. None of those pre-interim period issues were implemented. So what would be the basis for forming a government of national unity if the, the the very foundations upon which it was going to sit were not done? So there was fear that uh, 2020, uh, February 2022 was going to come and pass again and that there might be another extension. So everybody was holding their breath to see whether the parties were going to look past some of these unfinished businesses and focus On the formation of the government. And sure enough, uh, President Keir surprised everybody by making a a, a very significant compromise, which was to revert the country to the 10 states uh, where the country had been. Uh, before the outbreak of violence in 2013. So he returned South Sudan to 10 states plus three administrative areas There are not states but sort of states. Mm-hmm. And, and that was seen as a major compromise. And people were now looking at the opposition, what the opposition was going to do, especially uh, Ryang Machar, whether he was going to say uh, this compromise is, uh, is significant enough that it has to be rewarded by like manner. Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, and then the, the idea that reducing the number of states from 30-something to 10-something is a compromise for Salva is because, you know, he's basically, you know, taking away patronage from his allies.
1: Yeah. I mean, he mm-hmm. – you can imagine he had 32 governors to fire.
0: Yeah, exactly. And
1: he had uh, entire cabinet, state cabinets to dissolve.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He had um, parliaments, state parliaments to annul. And so uh that is a, a lot of political capital to lose in an instant, and, and what do you did. get for it? yeah, yeah, yeah. so what why so, what
0: why do you suspect he he took that you know pretty pretty bold step?
1: Well, I think he had definitely come to the own his own personal realization that uh that in order for peace to come to South Sudan. Uh, and to reduce the wreckage that uh, this war has caused and and brought upon the people of the country, uh, that if if the peace was hanging by his decision and by this particular issue, then he was going to swallow his pride and and move the country forward uh, in so slight way but significant way. And I think that is, uh, was a personal realization because really uh, there was no consultation with, uh, with the wider public. Uh, the consultations to make this decision only happened within his close quarter with the cabinet ministers and with his immediate advisors. So uh, that was definitely uh, what gave South Sudanese people a sense that, well, the president has come a long way in, 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 and has done this and, and he must be applauded. Uh, obviously, there are voices that are saying, "Why should we applaud President Kiel for undoing that which he should not have done to begin with yeah
0: uh, and then for his part, it seems that that uh, one of the key concessions from achar was that he would go to Juba, but you know without an army, um which is you know kind of a risk, considering that the last two times he was in Juba he was you know literally run out of there, you know being fired upon, so he yeah, no, I think that a lot of people. were
1: saying, no, I think there were a lot of people saying that uh, uh, that this peace agreement or the return of peace in general to South Sudan, all it takes is South Sudanese leaders uh, simply submitting their own egos and their own pride and their own political aspirations to the needs and aspirations of the people of South Sudan. Uh, this is what people have been saying for a long time, including some African leaders, saying that you don't need to go to Europe or to to East Africa, to the Horn of Africa, to look for a solution to a problem that you are the ones who caused it and you know how to undo that problem. And so I think there was the, that, uh, that uh, uh, voice um, uh, that was probably ringing in the heads of some of these leaders to say that, okay, if I am the only threat that can connect the country back together and piece it back together, then I must, uh, I must, I must, I uh, must subordinate my own aspirations. So Riyadh Machar decided, yeah, I'm going to go to Yuba. Uh, he did not insist on the, on having his own protection force. President Kiel also was in communication with him, telling him that uh, his security is his personal responsibility. It's something I imagine uh, his uh, security advisors, uh, Riyadh's security advisors may have said, may have. Uh, told him that, uh, why should you trust here? He almost killed you in 2016. So um, um, going back to Juba without a protection force is a major risk, but he did it. And and he was applauded for doing that.
0: I'm curious to understand if there, or what the impact of the political events, the revolution in Sudan had on um, the peace process in South Sudan. Was there any sort of link there that you see? Is there any sort of causal relationships?
1: That's a very good question, um, and and uh, and a lot of people in South Sudan are asking that whether the role of Sudan, especially the military generals who took over from uh, President Al Bashir uh, after June 2019, whether they had uh, uh, a particular uh, deal they made with the warring parties in South Sudan to end the war, because. Um, the end of the war in South Sudan is is good news for Sudan. Uh, and I think there was definitely a very, even before al-Bashir fell, uh, which is when the peace agreement was signed, uh, there was uh, a degree of coercion that Khartoum was exercising over uh, uh, the South Sudanese opposition because Machar at that time was residing in Khartoum. Uh, much of the opposition from South Sudan was residing in Khartoum. And there were reports that uh, the national security of Sudan actually coerced the opposition into signing the peace agreement. And so there was definitely a major role that Sudan played to make this uh, peace agreement possible. Uh, whether they were now uh, involved in the, uh, in the compromise that President Kir made and Yagmachar made to come together uh, following the 22nd of february deadline is still uh unclear although uh it took uh, uh hameti uh one of the generals uh who was a former uh commander of the Janjawit, the, the the hated and and infamous militias that uh, brought wreckage to darfur who is now a member of the ruling military council in sudan was the was the man who held up the hands of President Kir and Riyadh Machar uh, uh, two weeks ago when they they were uh, uh, planning to form this government. When finally Riyadh went to Khartoum, went to Juba he came with Hameti. And Mm. so uh, there is still quite uh, a significant suspicion that uh, it's Khartoum that is doing this. Uh, why, Why is Khartoum doing that? Well, Khartoum still relies a great deal on uh, revenue generated from South Sudan oil. And so...
0: South Sudan has the oil, but Khartoum, Sudan North, has the ports in
1: which to export and sell the oil. That is correct. So Sudan has a little bit, but uh, what was a total oil industry in Sudan, in the old Sudan before they split, uh, was now... Uh, divided up, and South Sudan left with seventy-five percent of it. Uh, but seventy-five percent of oil in South Sudan still needed to be transported through pipelines that were built by Sudan, and 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 going to the marine uh, port in Port Sudan. You still, the two countries needed each other. Uh, Sudan needing the fees uh, that South Sudan has to pay for passage of its oil, and South Sudan needing the port in order to export its oil. So. Uh, There must uh, – I do not have any concrete numbers or evidence to suggest this, but uh, it's very difficult to see how that is not the issue. So I asked you
0: earlier what you thought of the viability of this agreement, of this power sharing agreement um, over the long term. What do you – do you think that this agreement has a better chance to hold – Compared to prior agreements, are you optimistic at all? Cautiously, so that this might be it. That this might actually, you know, lead to a long-term reduction in violence in the country.
1: I am not uh, particularly optimistic. Uh, not not over the issue of whether the the the, the two leaders and the opposition and government uh, are genuine in bringing about this uh, this agreement, but over uh, what that agreement and what that government that they have formed actually means uh, for everyday people, if the outcome of it is simply to return South Sudan to where it was in 2013, which was not particularly a, a peaceful environment, if 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 the if the outcome of this uh, government being formed is to return uh, the country to a vulnerable place where the, the resources of the country were still being divided up between the elite, where the, the the revenues from oil, which is the biggest part of South Sudan's income, are going to be used to simply cushion uh, the lives of, uh, of the elite who have signed this agreement, especially those returning uh, from the bush and exile who have been without money for some six or more years uh, and desperate for resources to reestablish themselves, if that money is going to be used to simply consolidate the power-sharing agreement between this elite, uh, then what you get is a South Sudan that is still quite exposed to a possibility of eruption uh, of violence, given that majority of the people of South Sudan Will not have gained any anything out of this peace agreement. Um, the healthcare system is going to remain the same. Uh, the educational system is uh, lackluster. The security system is still going to be very very vulnerable to this idea that uh, there are so many guns in the hands of civilians and and armed groups. Uh, the fact that injustice uh, that had uh, uh, become ramp- rampant throughout the country will remain unaddressed. Uh, all of these things, if the peace agreement and the power-sharing government that is established in Cuba does not address all these things, then uh, really what you have done is to simply postpone a war um, because um, injustice begets violence and, and that people who will stay uh, in their desperate situations, including the internally displaced persons who will remain in uh, camps being fed by international NGOs and UN, and the million refugees languishing in camps in Ethiopia, in Kenya, and in, in northern Uganda, if all of these people are not going to gain anything out of this agreement, I don't see what this agreement means uh, for everybody in the country. Yes. If, if the guns are silent for now and this uh, silence uh, can be sustained long-term to give people a sense of confidence for them to return home, then maybe gradually you now will begin to build that confidence uh, that people have in going home and doing their own thing and, and not have to rely on the government to give them the basic needs. Uh, my feeling is that Uh, that confidence is not going to come easily uh, in this environment. My feeling is that um, uh, if there is no investment in rebuilding the relationships between various communities throughout the country, in mending those ethnic relations that have been so immensely wrecked by by this war, then uh, what this peace agreement means is just a little more than a postponement of conflict.
0: Uh, Well, Yoke, thank you so much for your time, for your analysis. Uh, This was very helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Yoke; That was very helpful. And yeah, as I said, obviously very timely. And I particularly appreciated his analysis at the uh, end of this conversation. Thank you. As always, if you're a new listener to the podcast, please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can peruse our robust archive. If you're listening to this on iTunes, you should subscribe to the whole feed to unlock hundreds of episodes about peace and security issues, development issues, humanitarian issues, human rights, all that good stuff. The views expressed are solely the responsibility of those who express them. And with that, we will see you next time. Bye.